You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. Rewilding Earth podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. Rick Steiner is a conservation biologist in Anchorage, Alaska, and founder of Oasis Earth. He's been involved in the global conservation movement for over 40 years. From 1980 to 2010, he was a marine conservation professor with the University of Alaska, stationed in the Arctic, Prince William Sound, and Anchorage, specializing in marine conservation, working on the environmental effects of offshore oil, climate change, fisheries, marine mammals, shipping safety, habitat conservation, and conservation policy. After the university and the U.S. government pressured him to restrain from raising concerns about the risks and impacts of offshore oil development in Alaska, he resigned his tenured professorship in protest. Today, we continue a discussion we've had on this podcast in the past with Rick about the wildlife management and biodiversity crisis globally and in the United States and steps you can take to aid in the fight for the future of life on Earth. Rick, thanks so much for coming back to the Rewilding Earth podcast for a very important one today. Glad to be here. Good to talk to you again, Jack. What is the crisis with wildlife management on a global scale? What are we looking at around the world? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. And that is key, actually, taking this broad context on the home planet and then understanding what's going on in North America within that context. So globally, nature is unraveling before our eyes. If you connect the science, thousands, literally thousands of scientific studies connect the dots between them. There is a catastrophic rate of species extinctions now and catastrophic wildlife population declines, vertebrate wildlife. We're essentially killing the biosphere. The extinction rate is 50 to 100 species a day a thousand times the historic background rate. We've already lost perhaps a million species in the last 50 years, and we have another million species on Earth at immediate risk. And of course, this is from overexploitation, habitat loss, climate change, and pollution. Mainly, climate change hasn't been the main driver to date, but it will become such throughout this century. But certainly, Habitat loss and overexploitation by humans have been primary drivers of the crisis. The World Wildlife Fund and the London Zoological Society do a living planet index every few years. They've surveyed 32,000 populations within about 5,000 species of vertebrates, amphibians, reptiles, mammals, birds, fish, and estimate that on average, we've lost about 70, that's 70 percent of all vertebrates on Earth in the last 50 years. Let me say that again, this is huge. We've lost most vertebrate life on Earth in the last 50 years. That includes large oceanic fish, seabirds, and all sorts of other species. And it's just absolutely remarkable that this is sort of sleepwalking off a cliff. And unfortunately, some people right now is dealing with important weighty issues like how to get tickets to the Taylor Swift concert easy, more easily. So we are, it's like we're on the Titanic, we're taking it on water, we've hit the iceberg, some people are panicking, 
the people that know what's going on and other people sitting around sipping brandies, listening to the string quartet play music. But this is a existential crisis we are in and we are not acting appropriately to resolve it. There are solutions. We know what they are. We need to be positive and optimistic about this, but we need to get to work. Yeah. I imagine the unraveling of the other 30% would be quite an easier job because people are off in other directions looking the other way. For some, I think it's too painful to see and they feel helpless, which is why this episode is really going to focus on actions that can be taken today. I want to be mm -hmm. able to have guests say, what, are you, what do we need to do? How do we solve problems? How can we get involved in a meaningful way where we don't just want to inebriate ourselves with social media, anything mm -hmm. that we can? There's nothing wrong with going to a Taylor Swift concert if you're also actively working and feel positive and hopeful that there is a future that doesn't include all of the headlines that you see today. That's right. We have to prioritize risks and solutions. And we're not doing that very well. People tend, and this is human nature, right? People tend to get distracted into easy things like the Super Bowl halftime show and things like that <clears throat> that are a little more understandable to them than these huge existential crises that we're dealing with or not dealing with. But the important thing is, as you state, there are solutions. And we need, in government, is the central cog in this wheel we need federal and state governments here within the United States to get active around this, the solutions to this. And we know exactly what needs to be done. So some of it, for instance, when the Biden administration came in two years ago, they're halfway through their first term. They launched this 30 by 30, 30 percent. They wanted to protect 30 percent of lands by 2030, what they call the America the Beautiful initiative, laudable goals. I think that should be advanced and expanded. It should be 30% of lands and waters by 2025. There's no reason to wait till the end of the decade. And further, unfortunately, here we are halfway through the term and not a lot of substantive conservation has taken place. And so that, that worries us as well. They need to put the pedal to the metal within the administration. That's why we need people to start advocating this within their congressional representatives and directly to the federal agencies that are charged with implementing that. There are solutions, habitat protection, uh, dialing down over exploitation ex or hunting and trapping of wildlife and such like that to give these species the best chance possible to make it through the climate change and habitat loss bottleneck of this century. And there's certain, certainly bills that are going to be coming up in this Congress this year that have to do with this. So there's a lot that's going to go on this year that we can get engaged with. Yeah, it's a big year. And I'd to play any small part in crafting the roadmap for that through having folks like you on who really know what should be done, what could be done. I realize that you are happy that a bill that sounds good on the surface that most people hear and go, oh, wow, that's great. That'll be really great. Can you talk about the bill that didn't pass that you were excited that didn't pass yet? Yeah, that was called the Recovering America's Wildlife Act. The acronym is RAWA. And it was it had some bipartisan support. It almost made it through. And it's to fund, it's to pour another about a billion dollars a year from the federal government, the Fish and Wildlife Service, into state wildlife management agencies, ostensibly for wildlife conservation and restoration projects and programs. Sounds good on the surface. However, 
We've got a bill existing that's been on the books for decades called the Pittman-Robertson Act, by which similar sort of funneling of federal dollars into state fish and game agencies used to be for wildlife conservation and restoration. But unfortunately, a lot of those funds are diverted into things that are cross-purposes to the federal goals of sustainable diversity in terrestrial ecosystems. And so here, the federal government, things like predator control, a lot of state game agencies want to do predator control to increase ungulate populations for hunters. And while that on the surface may seem like a legitimate measure to take, it really isn't. Predator control has been proven time and time again to one, be usually ineffective. Secondly, to be not scientifically based. And thirdly, if it is effective, it has a, the, the knock-on effect of destabilizing ecosystems, increasing prey populations, and causing overgrazing of prey resource, prey, prey base, food base, and such. And so you can have po- population crashes, and we've had that. We've seen that here in Alaska. So we've had these, this federal funding, annual funding to state wildlife agencies for a decade. It has very little public oversight. No real scientific oversight by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And we submitted a proposed rulemaking petition. My, my colleagues here are public employees for environmental responsibility to the Secretary of Interior more than a year ago. I think it was in September of 2021, requesting that she issue a draft and issue a rule that would require both public comment on each state uh, Pittman-Robertson proposal wildlife restoration plan before they get their monies from the federal government and and then also require scientific review of each program and then that the secretary would find whether those state proposals are eligible for federal funding or not the federal government has that authority within the act and we wanted to make we wanted to make it explicitly clear through a rulemaking that authority was going to be acted on we've not heard the secretary on that of about a year and a half. And the same problem exists with RAWA, the Recovering America's Wildlife Act. And it was strange that a lot of the national big environmental groups were on board with RAWA passage. And many of them were supporting that we don't need to name names, but it was surprising to me that they were all supporting it so strongly, just on the conceptual basis that this is putting a lot more money in the states to theoretically use for wildlife recovery and restoration without, but again, the devil is in the details. What happens right now with Pittman-Robertson federal funding, say in Alaska, is they use it to support their predator control program to manipulate terrestrial wildlife ecosystems to produce more moose, caribou, and deer, mainly moose and caribou, which destabilizes the ecosystem to eliminate predators, brown bears, black bears, wolves, and such from entire game management units here. And that is contrary to federal goals. And even on federal lands, even on national preserves, National Park Service preserves in Alaska and fish and wildlife refuges, the state has been implementing these kinds of programs. And it's, you know, so the federal government needs to get its handle on this, that it cannot continue to fund state agencies that are operating at cross-purposes to federal goals on this. 
What I want to talk about now is the thing that you said that a lot of organizations were on board with Rawa just as it was written. And it seems like they fell prey. It was an amateur thing. You read the headline, you read the synopsis and you're like, ah, oh, this is cool. Okay. We're behind this. They rubber stamped it. And what I want people to know is that there are people, the closer to the ground that you get, yeah. the more truthful and accurate the information is. So I would say, Rick, you're one of the people who's much, much closer to this issue than a World Wildlife Foundation. I'll name names. They don't care. Well, yeah, but I think there's people in all these organizations that care, but they, they got lost in the details of this. And they're you're right. They're not on the front lines watching what states like Alaska, Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, even Wisconsin, Michigan, Oregon, Washington do with these federal monies. If yeah. you get if you really parse the details and look at how states are actually using these funds to contravene federal goals of sustainable natural diversity on these terrestrial ecosystems, then there'd be no question that, yeah, let's find a way to support these state agencies with certain caveats. And one would be, and this is what we tried to amend Rawa last year, but it was too late. We were un unsuccessful at that. But the amendment should be there should be no use of these federal funds for predator control any way, shape or form. Secondly, there needs to be mandatory representation on wildlife, state wildlife boards and commissions representing the, dem the broad stakeholders within the states. And we don't have that in virtually any state. It's mainly hunters and trappers and guides like here in Alaska that set wildlife harvest policies and all the other stakeholders, which is 80% of Alaskans, don't really get a say. And so the feds can exert leverage. They do this with Department of Transportation funds all the time, say, yeah, we're going to give you a billion dollars to do X, Y, and D, Z for your transportation infrastructure, but you must build it in a certain way. You must conduct the projects and put these out RFP in a certain certain format. And so the feds, it's not unusual for the federal government, these vast amounts of funds paid to states and other entities to attach stipulations to that. And that's all we're really asking here. So yeah. no use of monies for predator control, require man broad representation on the wildlife boards and commissions, that there be a independent federal science review of each annual state wildlife restoration plan, and that there be capability of public comment. A lot of times, as you just pointed out, the public right on the front lines, like in Alaska or Montana or Wyoming, know more about what the states are doing, the state wildlife agencies are doing, and they need the opportunity to weigh in with comment to the Federal Fish and Wildlife Service before these funds are transferred to the state as a part of the eligibility criteria. So. There. Yeah. We just need the federal government, the Fish and Wildlife Service to step up to their federal mandate here. So back to those organizations, and I, I want to underline this because this is where the activism and the involvement and the action from people listening mm -hmm. to this really makes a difference. And I want people to picture it because a lot of people haven't been through, like when I was with Greenpeace and stuff, they taught us all about actions and lobbying and where all the power is and what people mm -hmm. listen to. and you know, how to get your message through. The biggest organizations have the biggest megaphones. They're the ones that get the attention in DC and on the state level before everyone else usually. And That's so right. if they're not correct in their assumption that this bill is good, 
like last year when they were all for it without any of the stipulations that you just argued for that should be in the next bill, then your target as a person on the ground, a collective, let's just say listeners of this podcast and everywhere else Rick has gone to spread the word about the much needed improvements to the bill being considered, we don't want to move the government right now as much as we want to move the big organizations who are just rubber stamping stuff, maybe because they, they don't have a lot of time. It sounds good. We got to move on this. They might be in the middle of another campaign and they just need a little boost from their own. So there's lobbying from within organizations as much as there is for government movement along legislative lines, new bills coming up. And and that's another place that we can be effective is to get the big, loud megaphone people in the country, the very big organizations to understand issues when we're closer to the ground than they are on those issues and have more information to share. That's a great point. Absolutely great point. And I would encourage any listener to the podcast here, if they're members of these other organizations, to contact them and advocate if when Rawa comes back up, and I believe it will early in this Congress, because it almost passed in the last one, to advocate a strong amendment, as we have discussed, no predator control, mandatory raw representation of all stakeholders on state wildlife boards and commission, federal science review of annual state plans and public comment, those four components, then a billion dollars a year, another billion dollars on top of the existing several hundred million dollars that goes to these state wildlife agencies would have those strong contexts within which we can be pretty sure those funds are going to be used for wildlife restoration and conservation. Right now, as it is, if it passed the way it was introduced and in the last Congress, we would have no clue as to how those funds would be used. And we know that most, many of them would be used for contradictory purposes, purposes that contravene federal goals. So, You're listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. From humble beginnings to global conservation phenomenon, the rewilding movement continues to grow and thrive amid the greatest ecological challenges our planet has faced in 65 million years. Here's how you can join us and help return balance to nature. First, go to rewilding.org and subscribe to the Weekly Digest to keep up on the latest rewilding news, interviews, and art. Second, consider donating to support the Rewilding Institute's mission to rewild North America and beyond. And for extra credit, please like, subscribe, and share this podcast to help spread the word. Thanks so much for your support. What if Rawa passes with all of these extra wish list items in it? What would that be like? Initially, what will happen is everybody, they'll put out a notice annually, is our vision. The federal the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service will put out a notice for pu to solicit public comment on each state wildlife management plan, restoration and recovery plan. And then everyone who's concerned about wildlife recovery would have a chance to comment on it, could review it, comment on it. Plus, as I envision it, there would be an independent scientific review, and it could be the National Academy of Sciences comprises a or sets up sets up a, a standing committee that would review each state wildlife recovery plan to be funded by RAWA and review its scientific integrity and whether it makes sense sci scientifically or not and what the problems may be. And the public would have access to that. And then these funds would flow and they, we'd have a pretty good sense that they were going to be used for wildlife conservation 
and recovery. And these terms, wildlife conservation, they're used here as in rhetorical form by hunters, trappers, and guides in the state of Alaska to mean predator control. We take out all the wolves in a particular 10,000 acre, 10,000 square mile game management unit in order to boost moose populations. And we've had study after study showing that doesn't work. And it has other problems, some humane issues associated with it. It's pretty gruesome things that people have conducted under that rubric. And I would also mention one big national group that did have concerns about RAWA, the Recovering America's Wildlife Act in the last Congress, that did not support it as it was writ written, is the Humane Society of the U.S. They're great folks, and they do have a strong predator program, predator protection program within HSUS. And they're very strong on Capitol Hill and and but for some reason, all the other groups failed to get on board and or get off the Rawa train and look at the details and recommend an amendment. I think everybody wants a win, right? And so these big groups wanted a win so they could credit themselves with it and raise more funds, whatever. Um, but unfortunately, they wanted to win at the expense of the actual integrity of the act. So. One of the things that we do is talk in shorthand. When you're in this business for a while, we both know what we're talking about. But to put a face on this, put several faces to this, we're talking about bears and otters and beavers and wolves and all kinds of other critters, mountain lions. Um, the things that you don't see these agencies really talking about. When these agencies put out a brochure, there's a great big bull, bull elk on the front. Inevitably, right. they never put a mountain lion on any of this stuff. That is not their focus, which brings me to the next thing. We still have one big problem. We're giving all this money to life boards and agencies that are predominantly special interests for hunters. Right. They are not qualified. One of the reasons that they don't understand the term or use it facetiously, and they do understand it, wildlife recovery is that none of them are biologists. None of them are scientists. Across the board, there's probably not a single biologist or scientist on any wildlife board in the whole country. Right? There's there, Occasionally there are, but- Not you know, for long though, right? Not for long, yeah, that's not for long. And there certainly would be a minority voice if they are. They're here in Alaska, in most places, it's a political appointee and has to be confirmed by a very conservative pro-hunting legislature. The governor appoints, the, the, the Senate confirms, and they're, al they're always consumptive users, hunters, trappers, guides, often not, almost always not biologists. And the theoretical model is they're supposed to listen to the Department of Fish and Game, which does have some very competent biologists, no question about it, on staff, wildlife biologists, but they have to operate within this political context of the current administration, which is all about delivering favors to the consumptive use crowd at 20% of Alaska's citizens. Not the other 80% can just go take a hike as far as they're concerned. So it is a huge problem. And it's typically, it, most state constitutions provide that all citizens of the state have a stake and should have a say and management of natural resources, including wildlife. So really, a lot of these state commissions, wildlife commissions and boards of game and such, are operating in an unconstitutional manner. And it's been challenged a few times and generally unsuccessfully. But, but the way that the leverage that the federal government will have, both now through Pittman-Robertson funding annually, hundreds of millions of dollars, 
to state wildlife agencies. And if RAWA passes another billion or so to state wildlife agencies, by conditioning that funding stream, that annual funding to the states, on upping their game, on making sure that the states have adequate representations, such as the tourism industry, right? The tourism value of wildlife here in Alaska is a great example, is twice the value of hunting and trapping. Now, I'm not talking about subsistence take in, in rural Alaska. That's another sort of an element that has to be protected, certainly, because people depend on moose and caribou and such like and salmon for livelihoods. But most of what's going on is true recreational sport and trophy hunting. We have in Alaska, we have the State Department of Fish and Game and Board of Game permit over 2,000 brown bears being killed every year. And that is not for subsistence purposes, hardly at all. Almost all of that is for trophy hunting. And people fly up, fly here from all over the world, shoot their big brown bear and then take the hide and back and mount it over their fireplace. And there's some, there's just some peculiar depravity about that to me, a deep insecurity or of psychopathology that needs to get untangled by the psychiatrists and psychologists and sociologists as to what's going on there exactly. But it's not in the interest of these wildlife populations or sustainable wild ecosystems, for sure. So this is the last kind of environment that you want to dump a billion dollars on with no strings attached because you know what they're going to do because they've shown you what they've done. There would be no reason. And once that cat's out of the bag, how would we ever go back and regulate it? If this gets passed without those stipulations, they're now powerful. They now have a billion more dollars and they will continue to do what they've done which is just basically ignore us because we're not loud enough, because we're not powerful enough to yeah. scare them. So yeah. they and really just run the show with no challenge whatsoever for the last 40 or 50 years. That's right. It's an absolute disaster, primarily in the Western states. There's this ethic of anti-federal, anti-park anti service, anti-Department of Interior, and such like that. It's really rampant here in Alaska and in Idaho and Montana and Wyoming. And other places as well. And it's ironic because here in Alaska, the first thing we have a, a natural disaster. And the first thing the state does is stick its hands out for federal dollars, but then tell the federal government to go away, go take a hike when it comes to managing wildlife, even on federal lands, which most lands in Alaska are federal lands, fortunately. It's Dave Foreman's two-year-old's version of the world, view of the world. And he's like, two-year-olds are very anti-mom. When it comes to discipline, when she's disciplining, right. but the minute they get hungry, their hands are out. And you just That's described it. a two-year-old, but this is a state full of adults yeah. that are acting right. in the same way. That's a great analogy. It's a, there's this sort of infantile insecurity that becomes evident and how people are, a lot of the consumptive use wildlife crowd want to have it their way. And these are people that are in their wealth, they're wealthy, they're, they have power, they have privilege, and they've had it this way, as you pointed out, for decades, most of the century. And within this, and they want to keep it that way, they want to maintain that power and privilege. And within that, there's this ancient hatred of predators. And so you have this ethic and this justification for killing wolves and coyotes and mountain lions and brown bears and black bears throughout the nation. And that's the kind of thing, there's a psychological component to that that I think 
needs to be methodically understood, and it hasn't been to date. It's not rational. It's not science-based. Um, yet this pervades mo many state wildlife agency uh, policies. So mm -hmm. uh, I'm sorry, but this is anachronistic. It's it's old. It needs to die out. We've had this for way too long here in, Al in Alaska and many of the Western states, and it needs to stop. Yeah. I'm reminded of Kim Crumbo. I was on a meeting and I was talking about, and this happened more than once because I forgot, and we all need reminders. You can't just know something and then just not revisit it and remember everything exactly the way you should. And he was always there to remind me that they do their management of the public's wildlife on the public's land. And no matter how much they raise in hunting fees, it's our land. They could never afford with un almost unlimited fees. You can't buy a million acres of anything. Okay. The public owns all of that stuff. The biggest investor in all of the hunting and fishing community is the public of the United That's States, right. right? Absolutely, without question. And a lot of these, the monies that come into Pittman-Robertson, and that was part of the reason Rawa did not pass, is they couldn't really agree on a funding stream where the revenue was going to come from. But the monies that come into Pittman-Robertson are for ammunition, from ammunition sales and outdoor equipment sales, things like that. And that's not just the hunting and trapping crowd. That's that's outdoor enthusiasts in general, target practice folks and whatever. And the bigger point is wildlife in these other lands are public trusts, are to be managed and as a public trust on behalf of all citizens. And right now they are not being. And everybody, people here in Alaska know that. People in all these other Western states know that. I had a conversation with our former Fish and Game Commissioner about that. I said, this board of game is not, does not represent most Alaskans. And, he's, and I said, it's not balanced. He said, well, they're balanced in each of themselves and individually. And I said, that's ludicrous. That is, that betrays the entire concept of balance and diversity on government commissions and boards. It's going to be hard. To, they, these guys have the power. And the status quo is in their favor right now. And so they're good. They will defend it jealously. Certainly they have been, but they know they're wrong. They know they're in the minority and they know they have this privileged power. Heck with it. We're going to shake it out. We're not going to, we're not going to hand the keys to this planet over to this minority. We're just not going to do it. Very, very clearly, like you say, in violation of the public trust. Yeah. And we will take it back. We will get in there and take it back. I think we've also been pretty timid in some areas no. as, a, as groups of people. You as an individual are right in their faces all the time. We have many individuals who are, but as a, organizations and things, I think everybody's been like, it's locked up. There's nothing we can do. They have all the power. And the thing is, we have all the power. It's really right. convenient for people like that to have that mythology out there that you are powerless, so don't even try. But no, the thing is, all you got to do is go up to somebody and snap your fingers and say, actually, you have all the power, and then spell it out for them. Like, how do you do right. that? How do you sh wake somebody up from that stupor that they were put in by somebody saying, ah, there's nothing you can do about this. It's always been this way. People just have to, I think, realize the love of the land, both in states and federally, is that we, the people, have the power, as you say, and it's our privilege and it's our responsibility to exercise that power, not just voting for the right people, but that's an important one. We need to have people 
vote for the right for people that understand and care about this issue of the decline in wildlife populations, the need for sustainability, the need to manage habitat loss, to reduce habitat destruction, to reduce carbon emissions, reduce pollutants, reduce over-exploitation and over-hunting wildlife populations. We need to elect the right people that get that. But further, even if the wrong people get elected, and that often has happened, we need to pressure them. And we, they can. They can be subject and vulnerable to public pressure without question. So yeah, people have a right and a responsibility, I think, to weigh into this issue. And if we don't, then shame on us. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. To get on with it and get into it. And it's not for nothing. That's why I no. wanted to get to this point. Again, all of the finer details about this particular issue with wildlife agencies, we've got Rawa to deal with that would guide the agencies, but they're only so guidable as their membership is diverse, and it is not right now. And so we have to deal with two issues today. And you have full instructions at rewilding.org slash POD. We'll have all of the details. Rick's going to provide me with all the steps that you can take, and they are worth it. And because I want you to paint a picture of what you think about when, if state wildlife agencies were governed and run with the public trust solely in mind, which includes hunters, it's not sure. at the exclusion Absolutely. of yeah. hunters, but includes yeah. them, but at the rate, the 4% or so that they actually their rate of involvement is, the numbers are. What would happen to the biodiversity situation in North America, in the United States, if you got what you wanted? I think we'd see recovery, not immediately, but over the rest of this decade and certainly on deeper into this century. And that's exactly what we need. We need state wildlife agencies to start resonating with the science here. And that's a critical component of this, that they all say they make decisions based on science, but it's off, they often do not. They only selectively harvest those scientific results that support their agenda of killing predators and taking more moose and caribou, and elk, deer, whatever, and exclude those studies that don't seem to support their position. Um, but I... I'm certain that if we have state wildlife agencies within this rubric of scientific, re independent scientific review in order to receive their federal funds annually, public comment, these stipulations that you cannot use it for predator control. If you want to do predator control, do it on your own. Don't use federal funds for it. And then also that there must be balance on the state wildlife boards and commissions, things such as science represented, a designated seat for science, a designated seat for tourism, these higher, these more pronounced values of wildlife management in the nation. You're going to see a recovery of wild. And these commissions and boards and state wildlife agencies need to start considering things like pollutants, climate change and, and other issues and habitat loss, in addition to setting game harvesting limits, which is their main, there seems to be their main focus right now out of ignorance and just leaving aside these other issues of habitat loss, climate change, and pollutants increasing in habitats and all these effects on wildlife that are not always considered. So. On the ground, it's it would be palpable, especially, as you say, deeper into the century uh, when wildlife 
has had a chance to have a few generations of litters and pups and eggs, and it would just be a filling up. But, and then getting rid of words like harvesting altogether. It yeah. never be a word that's ever used anywhere remotely near wildlife issue, public wildlife, public trust issues ever again. I'm trying to picture what the big prize is, the grand prize for everyone's participation today and in the future as this goes along. It is a beautiful, wonderful, huge grand prize at the yeah. end of this road. It's, we're not talking about, although this is important too, everybody has to work for their favorite local regional spots that are up for wilderness designation, things like that. But this isn't, this is bigger than that because it covers that and every other state. Uh, it's essentially fighting for the future of life on earth. If we get it right here in the United States, that provides a really strong model throughout the world in Africa and Latin America, Asia. And they follow our lead. And they do, and that's what, but lacking American leadership on this and the way we manage wildlife right now, the rest of the world says they're not doing any, anything of value there for conservation. Literally follow our lead, whatever. If yeah. I have, if we have good leadership or bad leadership, they're following it. Right. Yeah. So gotta be let's, mindful let's, of let's that. Let's get good leadership and really double down on fighting for the future of life on Earth, including all these extraordinary wildlife species that we co-evolved with. Um, and we need them not just for food and, and tourism value and economic value, but just this sense of belonging on a habitable home planet, which we are. We need them for spiritual value and for their own sake, written intrinsic value just for their own sake. And there'll be instructions at the bottom for how you can take action and be a part of one of the biggest prizes that you can seek in conservation for a hopeful, brighter future not just stopping some evil in a line of long evils to stop. This is a proactive, positive thing that everybody can do, anybody can do. And you'll have all the instructions laid out for you in this episode. Rick, thank you so much for taking the time again. This is such an important issue. I know we're going to have you back because we're going to need updates on how RAWA rolls out and other issues that you're working on. Yeah, that sounds great. I appreciate it. And one final comment. This is an exciting time to be alive. Historians, 100 years from now, will look back at what we choose to do now, what we chose to do now to reset the ship, to right the ship. And so it's an exciting time to be alive. There's a lot of problems and there's a lot of solutions. We just need to get there. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. We do what we do because of you. This podcast is supported by listeners like you who long to live in a wilder world. Please consider donating at rewilding.org and subscribe to our weekly news and article digest while you're there. To go the extra mile, you can follow and share Rewilding Earth on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Bonus points for sharing this podcast with your friends. To listen to past episodes, go to rewilding.org pod. That's rewilding.org pod.